You are listening to The Exchange. I'm your host, Dr. Lorraine. Hello, everybody. I am so excited to have my guest with me today, Ryan Bundren, who is a UGST graduate. And um, as you know, we have many exciting interviews that we are going to be doing this season. And this one in particular, we're going to be talking about addiction and mental health in the church. So Ryan, thank you so much for joining me today. I, I know that you have expertise in this field and we're going to learn a lot. You're going to, we're discussing several different things. So I just wanted you to start off with just telling us a little bit, bit about yourself, tell the audience who you are and kind of what you do. Um, well, uh, my name is Ryan. I am uh, a uh, licensed alcohol and drug abuse counselor. Um, I work in a uh, outpatient setting um, for a company called Sparrow Health, which is a uh, medication-assisted treatment clinic for substance use disorders. Um, and uh, I've been in here for two years, and then prior to that, I worked in uh, the prison system for five years. All of that was in um, providing substance use disorder treatment. Um, so that's a nutshell. Okay. So where are you from originally? Um, I uh, was born and raised in Marion, Illinois, um, which is in Southern Illinois, um, about two hours Southeast of St. Louis. Okay. Um, and um, I, from there, I, you know, you already mentioned that I was a Urshan, uh, UGSD grad. Um, I went to Urshan and uh, well, it was, wasn't Urshan then, it was Gateway. So I'm mm-hmm. a, one of the last few people mm-hmm. that went to Gateway, <laughs> but I went to Gateway for two years and then it became Urshan and I graduated from there and then went to UGSD afterwards. Um, and uh, well, I started working in the substance use field when I was a UGSD student, probably about, um, I want to say it was probably in the second year of my program. Um, we, they made it where the uh, MDiv could be completed online. Mm-hmm. And uh, my wife and I took that opportunity to move uh, back to, well, uh, move to Tennessee, where is, which is where she is from, which is where we currently live. And uh, a city called Waynesboro, which is a small town about two and a half, two hours uh, southwest of Nashville and three hours uh, east of Memphis, an hour north of Alabama, Mississippi. So basically in the middle of nowhere, uh, we have <laughs> one red light and no Walmart. So that's about <laughs> all I can tell you about Waynesboro, very small place. But we moved back here and um, I, we, we uh, became the assistant pastors at uh church here in Waynesboro and uh, um, I needed to find a job and kind of at that point you know I was just like um, I had a bachelor's degree was working on a master's but I mean I had a bachelor's degree it was essentially in in Christian ministry biblical studies so I didn't really have like a like a real career path you know that Mm -hmm. I like a job that that easily kind of translated into Um, and there was a job posting for a um, counselor um, in the prison and the first prison I worked for was a private prison and private prisons um, 
are kind of shoddy. That's the, maybe the best way I can put it. It's about making money, not really about as much helping people. And I mean, helping people. And so what I would say when I took that job, honestly, I was not qualified for that job. I had no real credentials or experience, but they would hire anyone that had a bachelor's degree and I applied for it and had a bachelor's degree. So they hired me. Um, so like I was completely unqualified to do really what I was doing. I had no real, like the only psychology class I had ever taken was general psychology. It's mm. just, you know, the class everyone kind of takes in college. And mm. anyway, I started working in that field and, um, right up just a couple of months after that, I took uh, intro to pastoral counseling with Dr. Cindy Miller. And it was just, you know, it was just, I look back and, you know, I, it was like, you know, I think I look back and see that God had a plan, but at the time it just, you know, how everything just kind of came together. And you know, I, I liked what I did. And I felt like I was really trying to help the the inmates that I was working with. And then, you know, I felt like, you know, taking some counseling courses that UGSD, um, I, you know, I took that first one. I immediately changed my concentration from biblical studies to pastoral counseling. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, just was like, this is what I want to do. Want to be a counselor? Um, initially, you know, I was I was really more interested in kind of ministry. Um, I mean, I still view myself doing ministry, but you know, what people kind of organ- look at as far as like ministerial positions, being a pastor, being a minister, um, wanting to, you know, teach in Bible college. Those were kind of some of the things that were on my radar. But when that kind of happened, I was very, very interested in, in moving forward with counseling. And so, um, so much so, you know, I completed my MDiv. Um, the counseling courses I had taken at UGSD, um, along with some additional training that I had done in other programs is what allowed me to be uh, licensed as a drug and alcohol abuse counselor here in Tennessee. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've, uh, after, and then after getting that, um, I started my PhD, which is a, uh, PhD in marriage and family therapy at Eastern university, which is in St. David's, Pennsylvania, which is in the uh, Philadelphia metro area. Um, I am currently a doctoral candidate in that program and writing my dissertation. So that's kind of the up to speed on the education mm-hmm. um, as far as. My family, um, I have, I am married to Jelaine, and we have been married this year um, in June. Sorry, will be 10 years. Yeah. Yeah, so that's, that's mm-hmm. kind of wild. Uh, mm-hmm. I don't know how that happened, but it happened somehow. <laughs> um, and we have two beautiful little girls, Jetta, who will be five next wow. month in February and Vivian who will be one in March. She was, and she was born the day before my birthday. So oh, I love seeing pictures birth. of your little girls, especially uh, your oldest daughter when she was first born and yeah. I first connected with you. But um, I wanted to mention that the first time that I met you was you were doing a seminar at general conference uh, mm-hmm. for sister Cindy Miller. She was doing a teaching thing for her pastoral counseling and you are the one that did the guest lecture on addiction and mm-hmm. so you were there teaching pastors and anybody there at general conference and had signed up for the course and so I 
um, was definitely thinking like, wow, this is, this is such a great thing to be able to offer to uh, the ministry that have no clue what to do with people who are struggling with this, you know, with addiction. I wanted to talk about how, um, how oneness Pentecostals, how it is that, you know, we mentioned they're not immune to getting into involved in addiction and, you know, have mental health issues. Sometimes we just want to sweep it under the rug and we don't really want to deal with it. So just tell me a little bit about how, you know, in your experience and what you have learned and how it is that sometimes we think that just because we go to church and we pray and we live for God that, you know, that that's just going to be the only thing that's going to keep us from, you know, being involved or, or in in addiction or, or having mental health issues? Um, well, I think, you know, sometimes we've set this idea that like you can like pray things away. Um, and while I, 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 and I believe, I believe in prayer I believe that, that prayer helps. I believe that communication with God, you know, sustains us and helps us grow. And I mean, if you're living, um, a a Christian life, I mean, you need to pray in order to sustain and grow in your faith. But I, I, on the other end, I, you know, and I, I I know we're talking primarily more about addiction, but I would say the same with, you know, mental health issues, mental health diagnoses, especially like you don't, you don't, they don't go away. You don't pray them away. You find a, a healthier way of coping with them perhaps. And maybe prayer is a part of that, but the fact that they just disappear is often not the case. One thing that we have specifically in regards to with substance use or an addiction, and um, um, I feel like with oneness Pentecostalism is we all have heard these miraculous stories of deliverance mm-hmm. where people, you know, they they walk into church and they have, um, you know, they have a drinking problem or their problem with cigarettes and they, and they lay it on the altar and they never pick it up again. I'm mm-hmm. sure we I've heard those stories, you know, right. and I think that part of that and I'm not saying, you know, I believe that God can do miracles and I believe that God heals people um, and I believe God can heal people from addiction. And interestingly, speak at it from more of a scientific angle, we know when we that people that not everyone that has has addiction issues needs treatment to recover from addiction and that there are several cases of individuals that have these very powerful experiences spiritual Mm -hmm. experiences religious experiences in which after that and i'm I'm speaking at this more from the perspective of psychology here rather than than like a faith-based perspective but Mm -hmm. have these experiences and then they no longer struggle with substance use on the other end there are people that despite having all of these same experiences, substance use and mental health and substance use continues to be a problem for them, usually for the rest of their life. Um, and I think one of the problems that things that we have done is we have set um, deliverance as a norm, as the standard, as the goal, that rather than as the um, maybe exception. Mm-hmm. And so we lead people kind of with this idea 
that, well, if God didn't deliver you or heal you, or if you still want to, you know, you know, you're going to church and, you know, you're, you're involved in the church, you're fellowshipping with people, you're praying, you know, you're doing all the things, you're practicing self-care, you're trying to take care of yourself, you're living a healthy lifestyle, you're doing all those good things, right? And yet, you know, you still get the urge to use drugs or alcohol, then, well, you need to pray more. And you didn't, you know, you didn't pray enough or you didn't pray right. And if you keep working at it, God will deliver you. And I, I think that this idea of looking at deliverance as I don't ever want to do it again is not really what I think deliverance is. Someone can be delivered in the sense through their intentional efforts to not use the substance and that they intentionally developed a lifestyle of recovery that supports them no longer needing to use drugs or alcohol to cope with things in their life. And I don't think we look at that as much. I think we look at this idea of this kind of instantaneous, miraculous thing. Right. So much so that I fear when we when we work with people that um, have drug and alcohol issues, it's almost like it's become an idol for us. It's something that mm -hmm. we want to happen. We want to make it happen and we want God to do it. But God, we can't make God do things God doesn't want to do. And if God decides not to heal someone of their substance use disorder and, 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 and calls them to take that up and live their life and to live their life as a disciple, despite having ongoing substance triggers, urges, cravings, that's something that God's called that person to. And it's not something that we can just pray away, so to speak. I love that you said that because I was just thinking about that this morning about how sometimes we just want people mm -hmm. to pray it away. We just want people just to shout in church. Let's just shout mm -hmm. more and let's pray more. And no, and no doubt, like you said, people do get delivered and God does do that. But we just, I feel like it's almost, I want to almost say it's a lazy way. I hate mm -hmm. saying that, but it really kind of is because we don't want to deal with the actual issue. We just want, like you said, God just to do it. And mm -hmm. we just put all the responsibility on God instead of putting the responsibility on us to try to really help people and, you know, disciple them and help them to deal with the underlying issue. And here's the thing that's even where I think we do a disservice sometimes to people that are coming to us for help is that when you set the standard that you just need to pray more, you didn't pray right, or you didn't repent of your sins right, or whatever, that, that becomes a, a, a fertile ground where shame grows, because then it becomes, there's something wrong with me, there's something wrong that I did, I didn't do that well, and then you start asking questions, well, because, you know, I'm so bad and so messed up, because of all these things that I've done, because addiction itself naturally produces shame. Because you're you're engaging oftentimes in many many things that are harmful to yourself and others, and so when we what we do is people have all the shame already, and we add on to it when we say, well, if God didn't deliver you, you know, or you didn't do it right, or you you need to pray more, and then 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 it'll happen, you know. Um, and I think that's just it's very very dangerous. And I think people who do that, we have good intentions, right. We do harm with good intentions. <laughs> yes, that, that is such a good point, too. It's like I always hear me, they mean well, they mean well. And, mm -hmm. you know, we always appreciate people that mean well, but it's better to do well. And, oh, yeah. And how do we know, <laughs> how are we going to know how to do well unless we take the time to educate ourselves, take time to 
know better so that we can do better. Um, so my next question I want to go into that is like, I want to discuss how um, addiction is an attempt to self-medicate because we know we're talking about shame already. And so shame is a huge reason why people um, start to self-medicate, but just let's just go ahead and talk about that for a minute, how that that's an attempt to self-medicate other things. Most people that begin using drugs or alcohol um, begin using um, during their adolescence, um, between ages 13 to 16 usually is kind of when that's happening. Um, and it becomes a way, the four most common reasons people use drugs or alcohol is to, to feel better, to be better, to do better, you know, to function better, or to belong to a group. And so those become kind of key things is, is that let's say also, so we've got that piece that the substance initially starts doing something for someone. Mm -hmm. There is a benefit associated with the substance. The second thing is a lot, the standard we know today in addictions treatment is that patients are co-occurring. And what that means is that they have a substance use and a mental health diagnosis. Mm -hmm. Again, let me reiterate, I said that that's the standard, that's the norm. The exception tends to be a patient that just has a substance use disorder. And so what we find out when people get in substance use disorder treatment is often that they had a mental health disorder that was undiagnosed and untreated. They had poor coping skills, poor ways of coping. And a lot of things that we realize is that substances, and there's this idea, I think a lot of times we that we form, and this isn't just like a it's a societal thing. Like we have like good drugs and bad drugs. Like, so like if you take like, well, Cinepril for blood pressure, you know, that's a good drug. But, you know, if you take Percocet for pain, that's a bad drug, right. you know, or if you, you know, you, you know, whatever you fill in the blank with, you know, and really we don't have good and bad drugs. We have used and abused drugs. Mm -hmm. And what a lot of times people really end up real in because of most of the drugs of abuse have a clinical benefit attached to them or a therapeutic benefit. Mm -hmm. um, the only, like, so if you look into like drug scheduling, like there's most of the drugs of abuse are schedule two, which are schedule two, schedule two means have a medical value, but are uh, have a high potential for abuse. Very few drugs uh, that are abused today are actually schedule one drugs. Um, so, you know, schedule two drugs, drugs with a high potential for abuse, you know, that's amphetamines, not methamphetamine, but amphetamines, prescription amphetamines, that's opioids, that is uh, sedatives, hypnotics, and anxiolytics, or benzodiazepines and barbiturates, uh, it's drugs like Xanax, Valium, clonazepam, or clonopin. Um, so a lot of these drugs are prescribed to treat mental health conditions, but can have a potential for abuse as well. Mm -hmm. Alcohol is also a depressant, which works very similar to the um, sedatives um, and anxiolytic medications. And so a lot of times when people begin experimenting with substances is that they try a drug and it really helps them feel not just better, like high, but like they function better. Mm -hmm. And so like, imagine like if you had ADHD your entire life, right. And, you know, maybe you didn't receive treatment and, but you went through school 
and your, you know, teacher was always like, you know, you, I need you to sit down, I need you to listen, you were always the one that had problems, had, you know, no one could ever focus, you're getting bad grades, you know, and so what you learn is, well, I'm not smart. And then what ends up happening is, you know, you hang around, some, you know, let's fast forward a couple of years, you're hanging around some people, and they say, you know, why don't you do this drug with us? You give into peer pressure, you do the drug. And what you find is after doing the drug is while you do have a higher euphoria associated with it. So let's say the drug that I'm, I'm leading you to is like a stimulant drug, most likely mm -hmm. um, doing like methamphetamine, for example, which a lot of times we, we, we think of this drug as a very, very hard drug. Um, but it, I mean, it's everywhere. Every people are everywhere using it. Um, it's very common, very accessible, easy to find. And so what happens is you do this drug and you're like, oh, wow. I feel good. I feel confident. I feel in control. I feel like I can concentrate and focus. Because the harms that are associated with substance abuse, they, they don't come with the first use. It comes later, usually after years, for you to really have some harm done to your, your health, your mental health. You know, first time it doesn't happen. So all you see is these benefits. So you're like, man, I'm going to do that again. Mm -hmm. Let's say you're anxious. Now, opioids are prescribed for pain, not for anxiety. But if you're anxious, they will calm down, down mm -hmm. right? And so you're anxious. And you're like, man, take these pills or start drinking. Or, you know, you, 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 know, you start taking um, anxiolytics, sedatives. So start, you know, taking a couple of those pills. And you're like, man, I feel really good. Well, I mean, that's how this starts. I think sometimes we demonize people with addiction because we think that it's all these selfish, evil people that are just like, I just want to get high, you know, and running around, like just trying to get high. And I was like, these are people that wanted to feel better. A lot of times we want to ask, why do people use drugs? But we never ask, why do they hurt? Why are they in pain? Mm -hmm. That's a good question. We don't, we, don't, we don't give them the time to, we don't give them the time of day we get caught up with just how bad they are or how selfish they are for the decisions that they've made. Um, and in reality, then, you know, you begin using substances to cope with, with mental health, or I would even just say even developmental issues, you start coping. And then, you know, now you're an adult, you're in your twenties one of these days, you like, you finally decide, you know, I'm tired of taking these drugs. They're burning a hole in my wallet. I can't afford them. My family's upset with me. I, you know what? I'm just going to stop. And then you get sick. Mm -hmm. Every drug of abuse with, with some small exceptions has withdrawal symptoms. You get sick, you get fatigue, you have depression, you have low energy. You get really, really anxious. Like you start having panic attacks. Those are all withdrawal symptoms. Depending on the drug, they'll be a little bit different. Some might be, some of the symptoms might be more severe than other. And then you're like, oh, well, I can't go to work if I don't take this. If I don't go buy this, I'm not going to be able to get out of bed in the morning. I'm going to be sick. Mm -hmm. And then you're caught in this cycle. It's where everyone ends up, and I said, substance use might be about, you know, enjoying your experience, creating a, a high or a euphoria, but addiction is about survival. What I'm hearing you say is that I feel like if we had just in the beginning 
diagnosed a person correctly for their mental health issue and gotten them the right medication, then you we wouldn't have these these issues. I mean, not necessarily if we had just gotten them and they would be able to um, be better off mentally, emotionally, even spiritually, if we had gotten them right help in the beginning, instead of kind of just, you know, push it under the rug, like you said, oh, you're just lazy, you're just this, you just unfocused. And we had started in the right point, Mm -hmm. you know, looking at the right things, then, you know, we could possibly avoid a lot of this stuff if they'd been given the correct medication. Yeah. Now, I mean, is there a potential for abuse for medications that are um, even given by doctors? I mean, we have an opioid epidemic that shows us otherwise. Right. Um, we know that that epidemic was caused at multiple levels. It wasn't just, you know, are there doctors that write scripts because they get paid? Yes. You know, um, are you know, and we know, like, like I mentioned the opioid epidemic just a second ago, like, you know, these farm reps were coming around and promising people, you know, it's like, write these pills and then, you know, you'll get a cruise and we'll go on a trip. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, that stuff happened. We know about it. That's why all these mm-hmm. pharmaceutical companies had to pay all these fines about the opioid epidemic. And so if that, that did a lot to destroy our faith in the medical community, I think to some extent or another, because the goal, and because I would say the goal is not always, I'm not a, I'm not a proponent of just medication management. Right. I, I think that, you know, if you have mental health issues, you, that needs to be medication management, whether that is something that goes on just for a little bit or for life, it needs to be combined with therapy to be effective. Right. Research also shows with any mental health condition that when therapy and medication are combined, it increases the efficacy of treatment. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, they, you know, they need those things. We need to get people in the proper services, services so that you can learn ways to cope with the mental health disorder that you have because um, you don't know ways to cope. I mean, if, think about it like this. This is an example I use with, with patients um, when I do group it with them is if you have a mental health disorder, right? If it's debilitating you, you don't know how to cope with it, right? So the medication piece comes in to get to decrease how debilitating it is. So, So you can learn how to better cope with it. Like, let's say you were learning how, I don't know, this is the, the metaphor that I use. If you were learning how to box, right? Mm-hmm. You're learning how to fight. Well, what if they put you in the ring with like Muhammad Ali or like Mike Tyson? I mean, I'm not a big boxing fan, but you put like with this, these people, you know, Mm -hmm. the the greatest of all time, you know, like you're not going to be able to learn how to fight. You're going to learn how to get knocked out. Right. (laughs) You know, and so that's what happens when you push people out into situations without maybe the support of medications is they don't learn ways to cope. They get overwhelmed. They're like, I'm a failure. I'm not any good. I can't do this. And then they re- run back and then they finally just like, well, this, this taking this pill is the only thing that's ever going to help me. And they have no confidence in their own abilities. And we, and, and one of the things that therapy helps people do is to instill that type of confidence, showing them things that work and just getting them each time to just maybe make a little bit of progress, do a little bit better. 
And, you know, we don't do that, I think, as, as well with people. That's why those things need to, I think, be combined so that we learn the skills and abilities to cope. Right. Because, I, I was just gonna say, like, I, I really think that, that they're learning bad coping mechanisms. So like you're saying, therapy teaches us to yeah. positive, healthy mm-hmm. coping mechanisms. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I wanted to go into my next question and, and segue into this is how trauma and addiction are connected because, you know, from what I understand, and I know that you're probably going to mention this as well is a lot of people that go through childhood trauma. Um, this is their coping mechanism mm-hmm. is, you know, drugs and alcohol to, to numb the pain. So, you know, tell us a little bit about that, like trauma, what has been kind of your experience that you've learned about trauma and that connection with mental, um, with addiction? So um, we know that there is, there is a very strong evidence-based connection between addiction and trauma. Um, the most groundbreaking study still to this day is the uh, ACE study, the Adverse Childhood Experiences Survey. Um, this was done... I want to say it was done, this, the research was done, I want to say in the 90s is when they did it. Mm-hmm. But um, it's still like a ground, what, it, what they found was, is that there, it was, and this wasn't, the study was done by the American Society of Pediatrics, uh, the CDC, and another group, and it, it's escaping me. If you want to find out more, if you Google ACE, you'll be able to read a lot about it. But here's the important thing, this is what I'm trying to say. The important thing is, is that we found that there was a link between early childhood adversity and substance use disorder, mental health disorder, early death, acquiring mm-hmm. STIs, um, physical health problems such as you know diabetes, heart disease, cancer. People that experienced early childhood adversity were much more likely to develop these conditions. Mm-hmm. And so, I mean, that's a shocking thing. And normally it is that, you know, your risk for increases for all of these things when you have early childhood adversity, not just one. And so they often, the problems, they, 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 they compound. You have one, well, then you get others. Mm-hmm. Um, so um, that's one of the links between that we know between trauma and um, substance use. The things that are, there are 10 things on the Adverse Childhood Experiences Survey. Um, I won't be able to get them all, but it, it's uh, off the top of my head, but it's uh, physical um, se- physical abuse, sexual abuse, um, emotional neglect, um, death of a family member like, like a, a, before age of 18, um, living in a home with a parent that was suicidal or had a mental illness, living with a substance user, um, experiencing financial, uh, if you're experiencing poverty, mm-hmm. often having to do without things, these are these are um, these are just some of the ones that are on the the ten things that p- children experience before age eighteen. So we notice, you know, when that happened, started happening, we saw that connection. Now I know correlation doesn't always equal causation. So in the sense, you can't say, well, because um, because um, I had uh, early childhood adversity. I'm addicted to drugs now. I mean, I can say that as the opposite. I mean, opposite is that when I, before I was 18, 
I experienced all 10 of the ACEs. Mm -hmm. They all tend to have happened to me before I was age 18. Now, I'm not using drugs today. Now, I, I, I have had a lot, of, a lot of mental health challenges and trauma-related issues that, that have bothered me and that I still have to work through to this day. Um, that, that being said, one of the things that would happen is I would say trauma is what often creates the problem Substance use is the solution. It's a mm -hmm. bad one, but it's the solution to the problem. It's a way of solving, coping, medicating the problem, self-medicating. We used that term earlier. And that's often the connection between the two, what the two share. Um, so um, like I, I had said earlier, a lot of times we ask, we look at substance use as the problem. This is the problem we're trying to solve. But we don't we don't take time to hear the story of people's pain. Mm -hmm. The goal of of treatment, even even in my own profession, substance use disorder treatment, I'm I'm big into harm reduction treatment modalities and stuff like that, and trying and doing motivational interviewing, trying to meet the patient where they are. Those are a lot of my things that are important to me as a practitioner. Um, a lot of times, you know, I think we're encouraged that we think the goal the goal should be the patient's goal. Right. But we have this idea. No, the goal is to get off drugs. We don't ever give give any space to ever try to understand the person. We are so dead set on trying to fix them from the day they walk in that we're trying to make them do things that they not, may not even want to do. Mm -hmm. We're trying to make. That's something we can all learn about addiction is that we think the goal is to make people stop doing drugs. So if, if that's what I'm trying to do, I take away the one thing that made them feel safe, that took away their pain, that made them feel secure, that made them feel confident, that helped them feel in control. And I said, we're not going to do that anymore. That's bad. And so, I, and so we took that away and we said, I'm going to leave you here in your pain. Hmm. Mm -hmm. Without putting anything else in there, we're, we're not trying to get to the root of the problem. Yeah of like what it really is like the layers the onion have that yeah. analogy that i've heard of is like the layers what is what is actually the cause of mm -hmm. why they're on drugs and why they need yeah. this and you know it's sometimes it's not always like with with trauma too it's not always like it's never going to be as clear cut as like someone's going to come in and they're going to say i just realized today that i take pain pills because my father molested me as a child. Like it's never, no one's going to be like that clear cut a right. lot of times. It's never going to be like. Dig it out of them. You're going to have to dig yeah. it out. Yeah. And it, it, a lot of times people, and especially early in recovery, they don't make that connection because they never were able to realize the triggers, the things that trigger, you know, um, the, the symptoms that they're having. They just feel them and then they use. Hmm. And it's very much that type. And so that connection gets made in the brain. Um, and that, this is one of the reasons why addiction recovery is so challenging is that um, we talk about, we, call, we say that addiction is the disease. And what I mean when I say this is not like I'm sick and there's nothing I can do and you just need to accept me because I have a sickness. That's not what I mean when I say that. When we say the word, we talk about disease. 
we're talking about that the organ has been an organ in the body has been impaired so much so that it's not functioning optimally. Mm -hmm. So when we thought we say diabetes is a disease, right? You know, we know that, that that's the pancreas is no longer working. It's not producing as, as much glucose that's needed, right? Mm -hmm. And we don't have any problem, you know, calling, you know, saying that's a disease. But when we say that addiction is a disease of a brain, you know, everyone's like, no, you need to make up your mind and make better choices mm -hmm. and stop making all these bad decisions. But what we know is that this doesn't happen overnight. Like, so somebody like, for example, let's say you had somebody who was in college and let's say they, they did cocaine in college, you know, they went to parties and they'd have these big raging parties and they did a few lines of cocaine, you know, and they had a good time in college. Chances are, but and when they graduated, they're like, Hey, you know, I've got a life and I've got a job and I can't do powdered cocaine on the weekends anymore. And so they don't do it anymore, you know, and that person didn't have an addiction. Sure, they use substances, but they didn't have an addiction. But when somebody, what, what happens as time evolves is someone that uses drugs regularly in increasing amounts on daily is that there are changes that happen in their brain mm. and their brain does not function as well as it previously did. So much so that even when they try to stop using, they have urges and cravings to use. The urges and cravings are even when they say, I know the drug is not that I don't want the drug. The drug is not good for me. It doesn't help me achieve my goals. It harms me. The urges and cravings never leave. And that, why do we, and so the reason that we know is why people have urges and cravings is that it is that when we started doing fMRIs on brains, what we started finding is that the, that substance use had changed the brain mm -hmm. in the way that it functioned doesn't mean that someone can rec can't recover it doesn't mean that, that that some that you know um we should think of people in uh using drugs or even recovered from using drugs as like they have some sort of disability that's not what i'm saying here they're just mm -hmm. as functional but that the way in which their brain now functions and operates has changed and that we can see that when we compare a mri of a brain that has been has addiction versus a brain that doesn't we can see in the way in which it functions. So that's and really so, good thing to know because, like you said, it's not it's not the same as the same person. They're not the same person that they were when they first started yeah. doing drugs. Their brain is completely altered after yeah. having done so much, and so the the approach can't be the same. It can't be like, oh yes, because they are dependent on this drug, and their brain is chemically and all of them physically, everything about them is dependent on this drug to make them feel better, to make them mm -hmm. cope and get through every single day. Like we talk about like uh, the neurotransmitters in your brain. So the most common one is dopamine with um, that that's released when all drugs are used. That's, that's one of the most important ones for addiction, but like opioids or endorphins, anxiolytics or, or GAP and alcohol or GABA. Um, met methamphetamine is dopamine and norepinephrine. Cocaine is dopamine and serotonin. All of these neurotransmitters levels increase when the drug is used. And so that's, and, but what happens as you continue to use them repetitively over a long period of time is that the brain adapts to the presence of the substance. And so now the brain doesn't release 
androgynous or naturally occurring neurotransmitters. It does it in the, when the subs only when the substance is released. And here's the thing about when how the addiction changes the brain. When people get triggered and they have urges and cravings that are happening, the brain with the idea and the thought of using or getting high, when that happens, the brain begins to produce the neurotransmitters in association with the drug. And so that's why the, the that's why it, that's one of the reasons we know it's not just the effect of the drug, but how the drug has affected and changed the brain because the brain does this in association with the drug. But, you know, I mean, you, if you, you know, you talk about the, a drug affecting you, you could sit right next to, you know, a whole bucket of drugs. As long as you didn't put them in your body, they wouldn't do anything to you, mm -hmm. but not for an addict. Right. Because it's like basic psychology experiment. It's like Pavlov's dog. The ringing of the bell. It conditions people and they start drooling. Mm -hmm. Well, it's the same thing. It's, 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 that's been conditioned. That link has been made in the brain because of months, most likely years of drug use. So I wanted to kind of bring this back a little bit about the church and mm -hmm. into how we approach it in the church setting. And my one and only time that I went to because the times in 2019, actually, right before I graduated from UGST, there was a session that was done. I know there was a session recently that was done and, and Sister Mangan was talking about, um, you know, their experience with working with people who were addicts in their church. But one of the church members came up and she said that she told Brother Mangan, she said, you know, I, I've been addicted to drugs. I've been you know, had this experience where I started off as with a painkiller, just trying to, um, you know, sue the pain that I was feeling for a physical ailment. And now I'm, you know, addicted. And she came and she told her pastor this and his response, I'll never forget it. She said his response was, I'm so sorry that you have been suffering. I'm so sorry that you have been suffering. And to me, that was such a a moment of like, wow, the compassion of like, instead of condemning, instead of being like, I can't believe, you know, you've done this, you're, you know, it was like, I can't believe that you have been suffering. The response just floored me because it was coming from a place of love. It was coming from a place of concern of, you know, mm -hmm. I'm so sorry. How, how can we help you? And I mm -hmm. feel sometimes that we're kind of missing that. What can you tell me about how we can support people who are coming into our church who have been longtime members or who are coming in even from off the streets who are getting new converts? How can we as a church support people who are battling addiction? I say, you know, the example that you just provided was, was really good because he was able to bear witness to her pain mm -hmm. um, and to provide empathy. And I mean, I mean, this is not just a problem that, I mean, this is a societal problem. It's, right. And we experience it in the church because we're in the, in the society mm -hmm. of America. I mean, the opioid epidemic is a perfect example of this. Um, people have been dying off inner city heroin for decades, since the mm -hmm. 60s, you know, and, inter and IV drug use and everything. But when did you hear about the opioid epidemic? Right. When, when middle-class kids from good homes started ODing. Mm -hmm. And got attention. 
<laughs> that's when it, that's when we cared when good people when people that you know were just you know good hard-working people you know got hooked on these pain pills and you know they're now they're out you know stealing copper wire so that they can you know trade it in for money and and, and buy pills and stuff when when that started happening when it started happening to the people we think are are good people mm-hmm. or innocent people because our inability to see and empathize with the addict is what keeps me keeps us from bearing witness to their pain and so we have to be open first to seeing um bearing you know witness i mean i i don't know you know for anyone listening maybe you've done this before maybe you've seen someone do it but have you ever seen someone you know that was homeless and they were out there asking for money you know and maybe you've heard or seen someone say oh you know i give it to him but you know he might spend it on drugs so i'm not going to (laughs) like so you have a a stigma and a stereotype about that person you've already formed and because of the stereotype that you have about them you can't bear witness to their pain because you've already decided who they are Mm-hmm. You made up your mind about them. You can't love someone that you've already determined is bad. In that sense, you can't give them empathy because you've decided they don't deserve it. Wow. And I think that's something, you know, that we do, we do, society is done. And, and because the church is in the society, we, it's become a part of it that we, we form these, these stereotypes about people. Just being willing to give people, um, you know, I mean, this is um, as um, Fred, uh, as Carl Rogers said, unconditional positive regard, right? And that's the whole idea is just allowing someone to say whatever they can, making people feel like they could tell you anything. And that you would look at the, try to look at them in what they said in the most positive light. You could see their struggle, you could see their pain. And that's, you know, people, people, when we give that to people, they're gonna feel safe and like they could tell us something else. I always wonder when I have people, you know, like when I see patients that come in and like they drop like a bombshell in counseling, I always wonder, what didn't you tell me today? Hmm. Because you only told me the things that you felt safe to tell me. And when you let people feel safe, they'll tell you more. And a lot of times we withhold. And so if people, when they're coming to church, if they're not feeling safe there, I'm not going to tell you anything. Right. So we make people feel safe. We create an environment where people can empathize. And another thing that I think we could do um, better in is that this, this, is a, this is a challenging ministry and you need dedicated staff, but it's building a recovery ministry in your local church. Um, so for any anyone, you know, any pastor, minister listening to this, or even church member just interested, to really do this well, I mean, you have to, you have to have a dedicated person who's going to do it. Mm-hmm. But someone that is in recovery from substance use, um, even if they need a, a, tar- a targeted place for support that's going to be good for them, that's exists for support and i mean and I, we want people to come to church we want people to come to sunday school wednesday night bible study but that place of support is not going to be those places mm-hmm. because you know i mean can you imagine going into sunday school and you know we're doing our sunday school lesson and 
They're like, you know, and someone says, well, I really had a really hard time. I wanted to use pills, but I didn't. And I'm really glad to be here today because I'm seeking support, you know. Uh, you know, I mean, that that's not, that, not that, go that, well. atmosphere, <laughs> that atmosphere is not conducive to that. So building a type of recovery ministry is, is mm-hmm. can be really, really helpful for a, pe- a place where people can have, have where confidentiality is assured, or at least, at least one of the, the rules and guidelines of such a program. Um, I know some of our churches do celebrate recovery, which is a, mm-hmm. a good program um, that I recommend. Um, there are others out there and what those are are curriculums but I mean at the end of the day whether you use an established program or not is that you're working to build a place of safety for people with complicated issues Mm -hmm. so those those are yeah those would be two things that I would I would work at that I would I would say you know building empathy and then building a place that's that's special for people that experience these types of hardships and challenges. I love that you said that because it's like, I, I think that we don't realize that they do need a special place that they can't, you know, yeah. we can, they can go to church and come to Sunday school and go to those places, but they're not going to reveal or feel comfortable because, you know, I feel sometimes in church that we just feel like we have to look and be perfect. We have to do everything just right because we can't ever let our guard down or let anybody think less of us that we're struggling with something because the moment that that happens, um, we will get labeled as, you know, not, and, and we won't be able to be, people will just look at us differently. And Mm -hmm. it's unfortunate. I mean, I think it's human nature too, but like you said about, you know, people that are on the streets and we've kind of already made our, our Mm -hmm. mind about, we've already labeled them of who they are, but being able to have a safe place where you can share these things, like you said, the comfortableness, the more comfortable you feel, the more that you're willing to share and the more that you're willing to share you know, that mm-hmm. those are things that you're able to recover from the healing. If you don't expose things, you know, how are you supposed to heal from them? Right. You know, if, if, if you think about physical health care, you know, if you have an injury, you have to show it to, you know, a doctor, a nurse, or somebody in order for it to be treated. Well, I mean, it's the same thing, you know, whether, you, whether you're going to, you know, to 12 step meetings. Whether you're going, you know, whether you're going to church, whether you're going to therapy, you can't show people your area of woundedness. They can't heal you. They can't help you. They can't support you. You know, and so if you don't create an environment that's conducive to that, people won't share it. And so, I mean, we have, have to create that, that place and we have to be intentional about it. Um, and I think, you know, this type, one of the things, like I mentioned Celebrate Recovery earlier, earlier, one of the things that I like about that model is that it puts people that struggle with a lot of different things together rather than creating like one group. But that's what all the anonymous like AA type programs have become mm-hmm. is that it, it becomes we have a group for alcoholics and a group for for narcotics and we have a group for gamblers. We have a group for all and, you know, um, is that I don't, I think one of the, the beautiful things about empathy is that you don't, to be able to give people empathy, love, and support, you don't have to go through what they go through. You have to be willing to bear witness to their pain. Mm-hmm. You know, um, and so you can do that because if, 
you know, you've went through similar struggles in that sense. Um, Yeah, and celebrate recovery is kind of one of those things like you mentioned, and I'm a little bit, I'm not as familiar as I wish, wish I was, but it's not just for one type of addiction. It's no. for several things. So you can have several people who are struggling with different things. Yeah, they say it hurts habits and hangups is what it's for. Okay. But um, uh, I mean, it being effective, but it's more about just building that place. That's what I want anyone to take away more than than anything is don't just don't don't take away from this. I need to go buy the Celebrate Recovery book and start a meeting and it's just mm -hmm. going to fill up and be full, you know, and I'll have 100 people there tomorrow. You know, chances are that's, that's not going to happen. I'm just that would be a miracle if that happened. <laughs> but it, I'm saying it's that even even starting with the people that you have in your church now, building a place where people can can find support, where they can find safety. Mm -hmm. You know, a lot of times we we don't we don't have that. We don't have that in the in the local church. We don't have a space for that a lot of times. Well, I really appreciate you talking to us today about this, and this is a subject that we need to talk about more, and we mm -hmm. bring awareness to. And um, I think my biggest takeaway from just talking to you right now is just that we, you know, as a church, as we just need to feel like we can support people and need to look beyond, you know, their addiction of just like you said, just labeling them as addiction and just really realize like, how did they get there? You know, there, mm -hmm. there's a reason, there's a story behind mm -hmm. you know, how they got there. And and I think my other big thing is, is that I think that we, like you mentioned, we just want to just get rid of the problem and mm -hmm. we just want to pray it through and thank the Lord for those people that that does work for. But for most people, it's a, it's a healing, it's a process mm -hmm. and uh, it takes work. It takes mm -hmm. work and it takes dedication and it takes, um, you know, some real being in there with somebody and helping them through their struggle and loving them and encouraging them. Mm -hmm. No, I, I think I think that's recovery is work. Mm -hmm. um, I, I don't really know any any real other way to say it. It's and any if you know anyone in recovery, you know, always make sure you tell them that you're proud of them. Mm -hmm. because you don't know how much work that they have had to go through to be where they are today right exactly all right thank you so much ryan bundren i appreciate having this conversation with you and i know there are so many more things that we could say about addiction but you have definitely given us so many things you get definitely given me a lot mm -hmm. of really wonderful things to think about. So I wanted to thank you again for mm -hmm. giving us your time today. And uh, hopefully at some point again, we can have you on again and have another discussion going in kind of a different direction, adding on to this, this mm -hmm. um, discussion today. So I appreciate it. So to all the listeners today, this is your host, Dr. Lorraine. Um, I hope you all have a good day signing off from the exchange. Mm -hmm.